Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Lucas DeMovio. So you may not have heard of Lucas's name before. He doesn't keep a super high profile in kind of public spaces, but he's a really interesting thinker who is a long-term member of the parkour community. I remember watching Lucas move to Colorado and sleep on cardboard outside of, in a, you know, a shed outside of a friend's apartment in order to try to make his parkour dreams come true. And ultimately he didn't progress to a professional level in parkour, but he stayed really involved in the community and did develop a very high level of skill when he was practicing. But he's moved on to other things in his life, but he's also very passionate about social justice and transhumanism. And Lucas and I have had a number of debates over the years where we tend to see things from op- uh, opposing perspectives. But unlike a lot of those discussions, we've always tended to be able to discuss things in a way that was really collegial. And Lucas reached out to me because he just wanted to be able to have a chat with me about these things um, on the podcast. And I was interested in that because I think a lot of his perspectives are shared by people in the parkour community. And I come from a very specific political perspective. I try not to get too political with these podcasts, but I thought it was important to feature somebody who wasn't in agreement with me on these topics and could articulate well some of the ideas from the other side. And we can interrogate these ideas because there are major things that are happening within the movement community and in the parkour community. And I think it's important for people who have differences of opinion about that to be able to engage in good faith dialogue. So this was a really fascinating conversation, really deep. Uh, Lucas and I ended up turning off the call and then talking for another hour about stuff that was you know, a little bit more touchy and even harder to get into. Um, but we cover transhumanism, we cover you know, what is critical social justice, what are other approaches to social justice, you know, what are some of his experiences around these things, where, where does his perspective come from and how that is impacted by his own personal experience and his personality and where he came from. And I think it's a really deep and powerful and, and, and valuable conversation. Unfortunately, um, because it was so long, there's moments where um, Lucas had to get up to, uh, you know, and um, take a little break for a uh, second. So we paused the recording and then put it back on. Unfortunately, the last time we paused the recording, we didn't um, get to, we, we forgot to put it back on. So the conversation ends kind of abruptly, but hopefully we'll have Lucas on again and be able to finish some of these ideas. But I think you're going to enjoy this and get a lot out of it, uh, especially if you're interested in sort of these discussions um, around not just um, how do we move well, 
but how do we organize ourselves through good sense making and through the movement community to be able to bridge our gaps better and understand who we are and what's happening in our culture better. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Lucas DeMovio. So Lucas, welcome on the Evolve Move Play uh, podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So you reached out to me because you wanted to have a conversation and I'm kind of interested in some of these conversations with people who are following the channel, but also I'd actually been interested in potentially having a conversation with you for quite a while. And the reason is because I'm a big critic of sort of uh, what I call critical social justice approaches. Um, those are social justice that's from a critical theory perspective, what, you know, it's more commonly called wokeness um, these days. And I've seen you as a defender of those in the community, but unlike a lot of people who defend that, um, I perceived you as generally being open-minded to trying to understand where people from the other side are coming from and interested in good faith dialogue, which is something that, to be frank, I don't find a lot of people who come from that perspective seem to be oriented towards. So that was my interest in, in sort of being like, okay, this person disagrees with me on a lot of stuff, which is fine and interesting, but I think I could actually have a conversation with them. So tell me a little bit about why you wanted to have a conversation with me. Yeah. So, so I think, uh, uh, you're one of the, you're one of the, the few people that has, um, a platform in the parkour community that talks about, um, I would say, I would say values that, um, asymptotically approach social conservatism. Like mm -hmm. maybe you're not like on the graph itself, but sometimes you approach it. Sometimes you have different opinions. Um, and I think our view, our viewpoints are so axiomatically different, mm -hmm. but we're part of the same community. We both love parkour. Uh, we've been in the community for a while. You've been in the community for, for probably like seven years longer than I have. Oh, yeah, I started in two, 2005. Yeah, yeah, okay, Jesus. I started in 2010. Okay, yeah. um, almost, there we go. So, you know, I, uh, yeah, so, so it's kind of just like interest. I, I wanted to talk to someone who, um, I mean, we're basically in the same in the same religion, but we believe very differently. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's also this kind of crisis with um, men, male identifying people in the parkour community that are beginning to age out of it. Mm -hmm. And there's this gravitation towards um, Jordan Peterson, these sort of like these right-wing narratives that uh, can help anchor one's identity. Um, and to me, it's a little worrying. I, I see, I understand why that's the case. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's a little worrying. So there's kind of like people who can handle um, adult life, 40 hours a week, that kind of thing. People who fall into deep depression, drugs, suicide, whatever. And then people who really just veer off to the like weirdo right wing world. Um, and so I'm trying to understand coping mechanisms for for men as they age out of um having parkour be the only factor in their life mm -hmm. that's interesting i mean i would i wouldn't describe 
Jordan Peterson as particularly a right wing figure from my perspective, but uh, but we can get into that. And um, I also see, I think, this crisis of masculinity within the parkour community. Um, and I guess I see it sort of. I don't. I don't see a lot of extreme right wing people in parkour at all. Right? I, I should probably. I should probably um, preface this by saying. Um, this is an English phenomenon, the, the right wing bent that I've noticed, uh, and not so much North American. And I don't know why that is. I feel <laughs> I want you to give me names because I, uh, I, uh, cause I just don't, I can't, I can't think of a, of an English guy I know who's, who's strongly right wing, but I also don't want to be like accusing people on the podcast of being extremists. So. I, I, I would, I would like people to also be here like it yeah, yeah. be yeah, yeah. so they can defend meaning. themselves yeah that, that's I, I don't i guess i don't recognize that but yeah that's interesting i'm i'm kind of in the opposite perspective where i feel like i feel like i've seen one of the reasons why i want to talk to you is because i i'm very worried about the influence i guess you're worried about the influence of, of right-wing perspectives i'm worried of the influence in general of 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 extreme left-wing perspectives, you could say, or to be more precise, I'm, I think that that critical theory inflected um, social justice narratives are, are being widely picked up within the community. Most people don't actually understand where they come from or what their origins are or what their implications are. And they're, mm -hmm. they're being replicated and I see them uh, tending to tear our communities apart um, and also tending to, in my opinion, I see that people who adopt them tend to end up in pretty miserable psychological places. I see the people who, who adopt the Jordan Peterson perspective, on the other hand, moving towards a much more balanced and healthy life, right? And it's not always Jordan Peterson, but, but a lot, it's, it's striking to me that like within the Seattle parkour community, there are the people who talk a lot about social justice and then there are people who don't talk a lot, but the people who don't talk a lot, almost all, for instance, ended up getting interested in Jordan Peterson. Like I remember going <laughs> to a Jordan Peterson uh, event in 2017, I think. And like, as we were standing in line, like I saw like five guys who were like, old mainstays of the parkour community guys who've been around for a decade wow. who had no idea were interested in jordan peterson and most of these people uh, don't post their political opinions on social media at all people do approach me and talk to me behind the scenes right like oh my god this this happened right so yeah so that's 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 what i'm seeing is that is that people who is that there's a there's a lot of people who are not feeling safe to actually talk about what their beliefs are or perspectives are within the parkour community because they're getting shouted down and getting accused of being racist and sexist and extreme right wingers and there's a lot of people who um, and there's a, it, it's this is less true now I think it's hard to say but like for a couple of years there it really felt like there there were people that i didn't want to train with in the community because every event would be politicized right you oh, couldn't fuck. you couldn't you couldn't go to a jam and everyone would be cool it was like it, 
it, you had to have a discussion of social justice or somebody would transgress some social justice boundary, right? And would get yelled at. And, and it just felt like politics had invaded our community. Whereas when I first started training parkour 17 years ago, one of the things that was really cool was how it united people across the political spectrum, right? We'd have these intense debates with friends who are creationists and who are, you know, hardline extremist um, uh, uh, libertarians or people who are anti-gay marriage at that point or anti-drug legalization, which, you know, I was on the other side of all those, all those debates, but all those people were friends. Now, some of them, like, <laughs> one of those guys is now like, the, the giant COVID skeptic who's telling us that like, it's all the new world order and attacking everybody. And, and like, I can't, I can't, I can't be, I can't, I can't communicate yeah. with them at all anymore. But so my uh, safe space from politics has become politicized. Yeah. So I wonder how much of that is in, as a, um, a generation gap, because when you started parkour, I was in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, no, fuck. I was in middle school. Yeah. So so there was an entire generation, not parkour generation, but like actual generation of children that aged into parkour yeah. um, and aged into the community. And so it might just be that there were different values that were that were brought into an adult because because yeah. you're you're an elder millennial. Yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, technically, yeah. I'm an elder millennial. I'm thirty nine. Okay. Like no fucking way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're doing you're doing good for yourself. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. No, not balding and not graying early, so that helps. But um, yeah. I, uh, I, I definitely have a. My parents basically were hippies, right? And so they they were part of the 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 '60s '70s counterculture, and they're kind of you know later in that generation but they're baby boomers and they uh they i was really isolated from the cultural currents of the 80s and 90s because i was in this 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 uh kind of um uh counterculture sub community so i feel much more like uh, a gen x culturally and i get on with gen x people much better than with millennials i have uh, mm. i share the gen x perspective on millennials i'm not a huge fan <laughs> But, um, but I mean, you know, most of the students who came up with me, you know, most of the people who are in the community, I mean, I got, I think, I think I can only think of one person who's like a big member of the community and has been in Seattle for a long period of time. Who's, who's, uh, he's a legit Gen X, right? Okay. And everybody else is younger than me, right? They were all millennials and, um, you know, a lot of them are ab about eight to 10 years younger than me. And none of this stuff was current. None of this stuff was happening when the parkour community was starting. Yeah, up. interesting. Came in later, it was not a, you know, a lot of the the people who are propagating these these memes, in, in my opinion, um, are people who have been around the community for a long time, right? All right. Yeah. So, so I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Yeah. That. I mean, I can't, well, we don't know. Like, let's not say you're wrong because. Because well, it's it's I, I we're it we're was... talking about anecdotes, right? <laughs> right, I, right. I don't I, like I haven't been super involved in the parkour community, so I don't know everybody who's involved, and I don't know how like you know it's possible that as as Gen Z and younger millennials have come into the community that they 
that that's been what those older millennials who I'm seeing are responding to. So it's still a plausible mm -hmm. hypothesis. It's just, you know, it doesn't accord with my experience, but my experience is, is only worth so much. And as far as your, your personal experience, have you felt that there was a difference in, uh, in communities across the states as far as um, kind of the prevalence of political? Yeah. Because Seattle and Portland to me feel like very political cities, yeah, like yeah. almost almost like a, like a, sorry about the cars and stuff. Uh, One second. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I'll answer your question, which is to say, again, it's hard for it's harder for me to say because my work has moved away from the parkour community directly, right? I still interact with the parkour community, but I'm not. It's like I haven't been able to go to North American Parkour Championships since 2013. I haven't been able to go to any of the major jams. I haven't been to Winter Jam um, because I've just been busy with my own work and I've been attracting a, a community that has, you know, maybe it's 10%, 20% parkour athletes and people from movement culture and people from, you know, various other places. So, um, so I'm, I'm not as deeply embedded in the community as I used to be. So I'm hesitant to say, but certainly like, if you look at the broader social trends, like if you look at where people are getting canceled on campuses, it's almost entirely on the West coast and the East coast, right? It's elite universities in Massachusetts and New York and, you know, uh, Connecticut and Oregon, Washington, you know, especially, you know, also San Francisco, Silicon Valley is huge for the kind of um, critical social justice uh, perspective, though my understanding of it is that it is essentially has total dominance of our of our educational institutions, the, the, the places where teachers go to be educated are all pretty much an ideological lockstep. So it is being, it is present in school systems throughout the country. It's just- so can, can, I, can I ask a few clarifying questions and then yeah, kind sure. of clarify my own position? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'd love to, I'd love to we've, we've talked about my perspective. I'd love to hear from yours. Yeah, yeah, so, so, um, so I haven't read any theory regarding critical social justice. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it, to be completely honest. What the, the um, a lot of the perspectives of social justice that I know about is historical. So kind of the social justice movements of the 20th century, 19th and 18th century, especially the, um, the Quaker um, abolitionist movements. Sure. Um, especially in the in the uh, in the UK, well, the British Empire. Um, I don't know anything about critical race theory. I'm kind of interacting uh, with the culture on the level of memes, so it's very very surface level. Um, and and you know the arguments I had uh, with people on on social media. Um, what do you mean when you? when you say critical social justice. Yeah, so I'm trying to draw a distinction between the perspective of someone like uh, Robin DiAngelo or even Max Kendi or more specifically someone like Angela Davis or Derek Bell or Bell Hooks compared to someone like Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther King has, is a person who is 
you know, very much working towards social justice, right? But he's actually specifically working within a Christian frame, right? Right, yes. Right. If you've read Strength to Love, you know that that King is, is de- that he's essentially trying to realize what he views as a Christian vision of, you know, the universal brotherhood of mankind. Mm-hmm. Critical social justice, in my opinion, is almost completely antithetical to the Kingian vision, which most people don't realize because it flies under the flag of anti-racism. But critical social justice descends from Marxism via, you know, critical theory and So my understanding of it is essentially, I mean, we can kind of track it back all the way to like Hegel, but you know, so you have Marx and then you have followers of Marx and some of those became the Frankfurt School, right? Adorno and his students. And in particular, a really important figure is uh, Herbert Marcuse, right? Herbert Marcuse is a huge figure in, in left-wing thought in the 1960s. And his student, Angela Davis, is part of a, uh, a specific commune of, of black feminist thought that um, was radical ethno-Marxist, basically. Very much inspired also by Mao. And they, uh, he, he basically says that in order to reach a sort of utopia, right, we have to get rid of all of the kind of current cultural structure. It's all installing this false consciousness in us. And we need this critical consciousness to allow us to progress to this new utopia that he imagines. Traditionally, Marxists, of course, believe in the proletariat, right? But Marcuse in the 1960s says that the working class is no longer the target of of the left because they lack revolutionary consciousness. And instead, what we need is an alliance of intellectuals and people of color. The idea is that because people of color suffer historical uh, injustice, that they have a motivation. Yeah, that they like the proletariat, but that they have a motivation to be contrary to or to the the structure as it stands. Mm. And so you have this alliance, which is pretty much the world it looks like we live in, between a relatively small segment of elite affluent people and an activist base that largely exists within people of color communities or communities of color. I hate the term people of color. I think it's a, it's a, it's a bad um, construction, but within ethnic minority, visible minority communities, a lot of times the people in the activist base are promulgating ideas that have very little support within the communities that they claim to speak for, Mm -hmm. but they're being given, but they're helping direct political power into those communities. So they're given somewhat of a blind eye, right? Mm -hmm. We can look at something like Black Lives Matter and how Black Lives Matter makes a big, um, has a big emphasis on alliance with the trans community. If you look at polling, which is, yeah, which is not, yeah, which is not, because um, the, the, the American black community, I mean, most black community is very conservative. Exactly. They're very socially yeah. conservative. Mm-hmm. So why, why, why is there not pushback from 
the African-American community against something like Black Lives Matter, despite the fact that its ideology is actually completely contrary to their social ideology because it's a way, because it's a power alliance. Well, so, That's my so, there, there, so there is, um, but it seems like maybe we can talk maybe, maybe in a broader sense about um, social media conversations, but uh, I, these conversations do happen, but they're happening between kind of the Black Baptists and um, Pentecostals and the Hoteps and the social justice folks, but it's happening on Black Twitter, yeah. um, away from the eyes of, 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 the, of the community at large. And then maybe you might see a meme or something. It gets misunderstood because it's taken out of cultural context. But I, I actually do think that the, um, if you want to look at it at a very base level, the kind of pushback that Little Nas X is getting mm -hmm. from the Black community, from other rappers, right? Yeah. I mean, transphobia, homophobia is still like a, a like to be a man in the Black community, the, uh, uh, being uh, on top of a hierarchy Mm -hmm. um, and kind of expelling um, sexual difference is still a part of it. There's been a lot of change since I was a kid, but in my view, not enough. But but it, it's definitely, um, uh, I would say that the political lines aren't as clear per se, which is why like um, outside of the Midwest during the, during the, um, protests and the riots, a lot of the people breaking shit weren't black people. <laughs> so, so in, so in, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, um, was it St. Louis? I feel like police are always acting crazy in St. Louis, but it might've been St. Louis. It might be another town in, in Missouri. It wasn't Ferguson. Fuck me. Anyway, wherever the, the, um, uh, the kind of outpouring of anger broke out, the people burning shit there were actually the residents of the, of the town because they had actual grievance. Um, but as far as like the countrywide protests, it was very, it was kind of a, a color coalition, but that's kind of like all leftist movements have this element of uh, kind of piecing together different social movements in an ad hoc fashion in a way that might not make sense. Mm -hmm. um, to kind of push forward some agreed upon or not agreed upon agenda. Um, just to just to clarify my position, yeah, um, just so that I'm not I'm not defending things that I, I don't agree with. Um, I tend to approach these things both from a historical perspective and also as a transhumanist. And so, um, as a transhumanist, I'm I'm committed to a certain um, to a certain project of increasing liberty and capability of the human species. So that, that's, that's what I'm focused on. From the historical perspective, um, you know, most of human history, um, as far as intergroup conflict has been awful, and as far as um, hierarchy within uh, societies has been pretty, pretty rough for people, unless, you know, you are noble, who's been landed for like 900 years or whatever. Uh, but even then, right? Like someone might 
someone might jack your shit and like kill your family. And so, so Noble we, wasn't that great, honestly. Um, people yeah, right. like, like if you look back and you look at like names, right. You can mm -hmm. see that, that people who are in the noble class, their names went extinct at a much higher rate than people who are in the upper classes of the mercantile class, because, because the, the, because playing politics and warfare gets you killed a lot more. Yes. Yes. And so, and so, um, just jumping off, you jumping off of that point, you see ways in which proto-capitalism existed in the Middle Ages in the Hassianic League, in Venice, uh, in Pisa, in, in Genoa, mm -hmm. and that kind of um, led up to uh, the Dutch and the Portuguese and um, the different colonial experiments after um, the, what was it, after the Thirty Years' War. So in my view, I don't view the society we live in now as the final template. So I'm not, I'm not emotionally committed to, uh, you know, the United States being the city on the hill kind of thing. That being said, uh, I'm broadly pro-capitalism. Um, and I, I think that I value... I value social justice because it's willing to play with really crazy ideas, not necessarily that I value the ideas themselves, right? It's like, so, so yeah, so it's like, uh, I'm sure, you know, in the year 1200, there were a bunch of really weird ideas invented by monks on how to achieve, you know, more godly society. One of those ideas ended up being something that we kind, kind of the thing we have now this like weird mix of like uh um kind of merchant powered democracy right um but a lot of those ideas didn't come to fruition some of them might have been good and got crushed militarily maybe we can talk about um whether that's a viable strategy to have an ethical idea that gets crushed but um yeah so so i'm not necessarily committed to to the prescriptions of leftists, but I definitely view the frames as useful sometimes. <laughs> um, so, so I guess maybe that's why I'm not as dogmatic uh, as other people might be, yeah. right? Um, because, like, I, I believe you completely, but, and I think this happens a lot, right? What I see is that you tend to defend leftist memes right so like as a as a person in social media you're you tend to end up on the side of of defending a i mean uh, a a a, uh, a left-wing meme right or like just the fact that you you seem to be very skeptical of the influence of jordan peterson in the parkour community mm -hmm. like tell me a little bit about that yeah so um so i spent about a year consuming Jordan Peterson content. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't read any of his books because I just I couldn't bring my, couldn't I couldn't bring myself that far. But um, pretty much just like I subscribed to his channel, watched a ton of his videos, his university lectures, um, and so I probably should have prepared for this better. It's okay. <laughs> there are a few. There, there are a few 
there, there are few layers, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're as interested in particular parts of history um, in the way that I am, you kind of understand how different ancient cultures were. And so, uh, uh, was, let's see, Joseph Campbell, the, the kind of universal myth, that to me just doesn't seem like it um, acknowledges the way cultures invent things and the way cultures spread. So that's that's that was one of my big issues is that Peterson seems very methodical and just completely misses that aspect of it. Um, his his view of um, so in in he'll defend capitalism in the same breath as defending cultural traditionalism, mm -hmm. which kind of brings me to to exactly what I disagree with about social conservatives is that capitalism is the engine that creates material change, which then affects social change, no, right? So for example, the Taliban want to be included on the Belt and Road Initiative, right? They want to be folded into this system of, of trade in Central Asia yeah. um, uh, headed by China. And so what they're doing is they took a look at, at, their, uh, at their PR campaign and all the crazy shit they did in the 90s. And they're like, all right, we need a better face, right? And so this is why um, uh, Daesh in Khorasan, ISIS-K, mm -hmm. is, is growing because they're saying, look at these guys changing our cultural values to make peace with the Westerners in China, right? But they're, they're doing it to be folded into this kind of capitalistic system. So there's this element in which capitalism forces cultural change. And so that's something that like, I'm like, if it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that he, that he misses that. There's also an element to which like, I am, I'm bisexual. I have a lot of women in my life that are incredibly important. And so like some of the shit that he said about women, his, um, I mean, the reason why he's, he's famous is the, is the, um, uh, what is it? Bill C-16, I think it's, it's, that, I mean, that, that whole thing to me just seems like needlessly I don't I don't know what the I don't know what the word is for it uh not not even antagonistic like there like it, it seems to me that um it seems a very strange thing to take a stand on and then there's this element to which he will make claims whether they're accurate or not, and not, and then, and then, kind of have a cliffhanger where he won't actually say what these set of beliefs imply, or what these set of beliefs should lead you to, right? So he'll he'll uh, oh fucking Christ um.
the big example that's that's sticking out is the conversation he had about um, lipstick in the workplace, but he actually was pushed to like prescribe something, but Yeah, I need to I need to actually like fish for an example, but, uh, you know, he pushes for concise speech mm-hmm. and is actually like not concise at all. And so you and so you and so you walk away like not necessarily knowing not not what was said, but what is like what is being implied here? It's almost like a like a like someone communicating in code so that you know the the secret police don't hear you know kind of thing. Um, and so that's kind of the the things that come to mind about Peterson and there's all, all there's all of this fluff only to bring you back to Christian conservatism which is which which seems very like <laughs> and, and 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 so and so I think that's very I, inaccurate to be honest right like he and yeah yeah and we can we can talk I about mean, it cuz because I mean so I, I heard a few things there one is like there's elements of his of his of his speaking style that don't jive well with you Right. Which is fine. And I like, Mm -hmm. I appreciate some of them and he's a synthesizer, right? Like all, like there's no, there's no grand synthesizers who don't get some things wrong. Okay. Right. Right. Like that's just like anyone who's going to try to think he's going to try to bring together things across a really broad range of disciplines is going to get some of them slightly wrong. And I have the same thing. Like I, I've studied lots of little subfields that he happens to, to stumble across and occasionally he says something that's kind of ridiculous. Like he, he says that in one of his lectures that um, there was a cat that evolved specifically to prey on hominids and it had a single tooth that was to evolve to, to pierce the back of your skull. Mm-hmm. He's so first of all, no, there's no cat that specifically evolved to prey on hominids. Yes. Yeah. Big cats at the back of, of human skulls, lots evolutionarily. And he's conflating a Australian, the thylacoleo with, with, uh, with, with big tooth cats. Just like, oh my god. Um. Uh. Can can we bookmark that? Because that's actually really important. So that that's another thing is that he is a part of a of a recent tradition in which smart people in a domain specific field talk about shit that they don't they don't fucking know what they're talking about. Yeah. So so he will he will talk about the history of the 20th century mm-hmm. and will pay attention to the broad strokes that you see in a textbook and miss miss the nuance. Mm-hmm. And and in in history the nuance is really important. And so I am approaching it from someone who loves history, yeah. who's been obsessed with history for I mean at this point 25 years and so when you are building prescriptive arguments off of faulty history it just it it just completely blows my mind so here's an example so he'll talk about um he'll talk he'll uh start talk he'll go on rants about marxists right about how our marxists in north america are the same as Marxist Leninists. Mm-hmm. So, no, they're anarchists. 
Now you can you can you can um, criticize anarchism for what it is, and there are really good criticisms of anarchism, uh, and there are a bunch of failed anarchist experiments that you can point at, but they're not the same as status Marxist Leninists, right? So you can say so so. That seems so like for, a really big claim to me, and and I, I don't think it's true. <laughs> so I mean, like, who who are you talking about specifically? Yeah. Like, yeah. So so, I mean, so who, I'm I'm mostly there are I'm definitely mostly. American Marxists who are Marxist, right? And there was a lot of there were a lot of American Marxists or American leftists who who ignored the evidence of what was going on or carried water for the Stalinist regime. Um, oh, for sure. Yes. Right. Yes. So, so like, I mean, Noam Chomsky is an anarcho-syndicalist, right? Mm -hmm. And, but he also basically, you know, didn't, my understanding is that when Noam was young, he wasn't super critical of what was happening in, in, uh, in, in Russia and was relatively blind to it. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. that. So I could be wrong about that. Cause he has, been yeah, I mean, I mean, there's this idea, there's this idea of like critical support, which is yeah. like, uh, like, so critical support is basically like, um, a country's internal politics might be rotten, but because they're not an imperialist country, like, you have to do everything you can to prevent that. Russia from like, is not an imperialist country, is well. So, so I've I'm, I've heard it in in context of um, China and like weirdly also enough, third. like North Korea, which is really fucking weird. But I, again, I mean, I, you, at least North Korea. I, I don't want to defend. <laughs> like, I don't want to defend. So when you say that American Marxists aren't Marxists, they're anarchists. Well, so yeah, that, that so so they're. Like, wrong because there are lots of american marxists what like, i mean is that they're not they're not marxist leninists which is which is i mean they're obviously marxist leninists in in the american leftist tradition right i went to i had professors in college who are who are who are marxist leninists right like that's that's just not true right? yeah i get what i'm saying is the bulk of of american leftist talking points are either Sokdem or anarchists. Now, I I feel like okay. I feel like the the left anarchists like in the 20th century. I feel like I'm probably going to get people really upset at me for saying this, but left anarchism is good enough to like break a state mm -hmm. so that either the fascists or the Marxist Leninists crush you. Yeah, and this happened in Spain. This happened in Afghanistan. This happened in Ukraine. Like, left anarchism, like morally, makes sense to me, but it's only really good enough for like getting yourself killed. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that I can follow that logic. I need more proof that that the dominant stream of leftism is anarchism, because, like, who who are the major important thinkers going back through leftist thought specifically in america like noam chomsky is obviously a huge one and he is an anarchist uh, anarchist syndicalist yeah i need to be really i need to be really careful with my speech i guess i'm talking about our generation um and it's because the ccp has largely like they're still like writing theory but they're basically like they're a capitalist country right uh, 
their their state controls. They're becoming less capitalist, right? They're moving away from capitalism. There's more and more state control. I mean, Jack Ma was just arrested, right? Mm -hmm. They're 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 smashing down on their 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 people. There's I, I can show send you a really interesting essay about how the about Xi Jinping is um, pushing back all the uh, all the sort of even the, the the slogans that were associated with uh, with Hu Jintao and it was mm -hmm. Deng, what was that? Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping, yeah. Like he, there's, uh, China's moving more authoritarian and more state controlled in its economy um, right Well, now. it's certainly, it's certainly authoritarian, but it's, yeah. it's, it's relying on capitalism to create it has the relied. wealth it has relied on capitalism over the last 30 years, but that's actually the, the liberalization of China um, economically mm -hmm. is a, is a story that it looks to me and I could be wrong, but it looks to me like it's a story that's, that is, it, it's a trend that is in reversal rather than a trend that is continuing. Yeah. I, I, it'd be interesting to see. I, I think that the CCP is largely worried about um social media companies, which is why they are like really, really uh, coming yes, down <laughs> on, on, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know enough to talk about yeah. social media and, and all of that stuff. Maybe it's some, or, or social media in the context of like state propaganda and uh, what people believe and um, yeah. Yeah, I should probably not talk about that, but but basically, um, I don't view like in electoral politics the um, the American left is quite impotent. Mm -hmm. Like, if you were just paying attention to YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, you would have thought that Bernie would have cleared house, right? Like, there's sure. there's there's no there's there's a no, not necessarily I'm, I'm gonna go back on that because okay you know if you look at twitter there was there's a pretty vocal bernie bro right group but mm -hmm. also there's a very vociferous anti-bernie um sort of modern social justice contingent and that contingent is much more well represented in elite media right Bernie is not well loved by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the major sort of left wing think pieces, right? There's this, you know, I, I have this. Uh, yeah. So, so I, the left. I think. Good. Oh, I, I, I actually, um, I think we're probably um, definitionally having some. There's maybe a mismatch on who we consider right and left. And maybe maybe that's the maybe that's the reason why we're not sure we're not kind of I, landing. Yeah. So like, I think left and right are really fuzzy terms. Actually, mm -hmm. I don't think they're particularly descriptive. I think that they generally just that um, that they're coalitions that seek power and that do a not a completely random walk, but a relatively random walk through time where, where things move in and out of the, the coalition, right? It, it, when you have a first past the post voting system, you have this, this thing of like, basically, essentially, you're going to collapse into two parties. Mm -hmm. Now, theoretically, those parties might be completely 
completely random, right? <laughs> like, and, and you can look at lots of issues and see that they've completely flipped, right? So um, conservatism, right? Uh, sorry, uh, conservation, you know, that was first pushed by a Republican president. That was Teddy Roosevelt. Was right. Okay, no, yeah, Jesus. Um, you can, uh, obviously, you know, the Southern strategy was the grand flip on, 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 on civil rights for, uh, African-Americans where Republicans went from the party of abolition to the party mm -hmm. of, of, you know, turning a blind eye to, uh, to systems of, of, of racial oppression, basically, um, you, you like even something you know something that was crazy to me when I found out about it is abortion right abortion was not something that evangelical Christians were against it was something that Catholics were against and Catholics were in the Democratic coalition up until I think it was sometime in the late 1970s right and that that issue is completely you know it's one of the dominant issues of what left versus right means now um, but it's only 50 years old right in that in that configuration but I do think there is some central aspect to it. I think that the, the main thing is that the, um, the left tends to be more collectivist, right? Um, and, and the right more individualist, that that's something that you can track back to, you know, the French Revolution. But the way that I like to think about it, and I think it's really important because I think that people get really confused in this country right now by the idea that the left is liberal. And my perspective is that, is that actually, um, there's nothing inherently liberal about left leftism, right? And we can see that in in China. We can see that in Russia. There's nothing inherently liberal about rightism either, right? We can see that in the Nazis and um, and Mussolini and, and fascism. But I believe that it was true that in the 1990s and the 1980s that a lot of liberal political um, uh, movements happened to be aligned with the left. So gay marriage, um, legalization of marijuana, these were things that, that are clearly, clearly removing the state's restrictions on individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Which is essentially a liberal thing. Um, I think now something like CCP, that's clearly a, being against, or not CCP, C16, that's clearly a liberal issue, state compelled speech, Jordan Peterson is just fighting for a traditional liberal position, but now he's fighting against the left to fight for liberalism. And largely, the a lot of the people, the, the IDW in general, is best conceptualized as liberals who've been booted out of the left-wing coalition. Mm -hmm. There's people like Ben Shapiro, but most of the people, Eric Weinstein, uh, you know, the Weinstein brothers, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, they're all left liberals or were left liberals. Maybe Peterson was a centrist liberal coming into the current political re-engineer, uh, not re-engineering, but reconfiguration, re, you know, reorientation. But they've been booted out. Now, what's happening to a lot of people, and this is something that you might be picking up on and like being worried about the influence of someone like Peterson, is that when people realize how illiberal the left is becoming, they tend to flee into the right, right? And so there's this, there's this, there's this illusion, I think, that people who leave the left have that the right is actually committed to liberalism at some level. Mm 
in a, in a, in a broader and more general way than the right is or in the left is. I think that's false. I think that actually, if you look at the, the data, you see that um, illiberalism is growing on the extremes of both parties. That younger people, whether they are aligned with the left or the right, are more in favor of authoritarian governmental structures and limitation and cancel culture, right? <laughs> Lots of people on the left like to point out that cancel culture sort of starts on the right. Right. But if you go back to the 90s and the moral majority, there's lots of cancel culture coming out from the right. And that's I think that's true. And I think there are still lots of people on the right who would love to have the whip hand of cancel culture and would happily use it if they had it. They just don't have the media control. So there's a there's a space of people who are left to right, who are centrist. Right. Who, not even centrist. They're just I mean, I would say that someone like Brett Weinstein is an extremist on the left. Right. He's a very collectivist, statist oriented, you know, um, progressive. He's just not aligned with the current progressive um, agenda. And because he doesn't have the liberty to speak in that, he's now aligned with liberals and in, in, in this sort of centrist middle ground. So that's so I, I think it's really important for us to become much more precise in the way that we think about it. Right. From my perspective, you have liberal versus authoritarian. That's one axis. You have um, economic versus uh, versus uh, economic liberalism versus uh, collectivism. Right, that's a different axis. And then you have something like traditionalism versus progress progressivism. Right, and that's a different axis. And I I I actually think that uh, my personal belief is that is that um, ideological adherence to any of these is wrong. And this is something that, that I'm deeply influenced by Peterson on, which I think he, um, it's very strange to me that people don't get his message because I think he's really transparent about the fact that he thinks that conservatives are right some of the times and liberals are right some of the time. And we never know who's right or one side's right some of the time, the other side's right. Some of the time, we never know exactly who's right until the future plays out. Right. We're always just trying to find that balance between them. So, and sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting, but let me finish this thought. Yeah. Essentially a traditionalist or conservative perspective is just that, that human nature contains a lot of potential for chaos and traditions are time-tested tools that organize human behavior in ways that tend to work well for us. And a progressive is someone who says, the system we have now is insufficient and is tyrannically oppressing certain people. And I think both of those things are always true, right? Mm -hmm. And a liberal is somebody who says, I want the government not to interfere with my actions as much as possible. An authoritarian is someone who says, yeah, but there are, there are always places in which your individual liberty can start impacting other people. And we need to have the state have some power to negotiate that. Right. And both those perspectives also always true. And a, a, uh, a fiscal conservative or a fiscal liberal in a traditional liberal sense, right. Not a fiscal leftist, but a liberal is someone who believes that the less the government gets involved in markets, the more efficiently markets behave, which tends to rise all boats. And a 
fiscal authoritarian is someone who believes that market forces can easily get out of control and empower people to behave in ways that are against the common good. And again, I think those things are both true, right? Yes, yes, but the specifics really, really, really matter. Sure. And 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 that's where that's where I um, begin to kind of slant more towards one side. So I I, I would yeah, I, would I would agree, say, and I slant the other way. But <laughs> but let's negotiate it. You know, it's funny because I would probably say I'm not even um, pro. <laughs> I'm very committed to my my pet project uh, instead of a particular idea of how markets should work or how uh, economies should work, how political systems should work. Um, but I think axiomatically, I disagree with conservatives because transhumanism is like the weirdest, like craziest offshoot of like change that you could possibly go with, which is so different from what a conservative is advocating for, right? These, these lie very diametrically opposed on, on whatever graph that you want to construct. Um, so, so I, I, I suppose that it's, you know, I'm very humble in the, in the face of like questions about these other things. I try not to talk about them because I've really, I don't know anything about the economy. I don't know anything about political systems. It'd be great if I could have more power, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know what these things mean. What I do know is that there's certain social things that I, I take a stand on and otherwise I, I don't know. And I'm committed, I, I focus a lot on um, the role that things like technology plays in, in um, altering what it means to be human. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think what I'm trying to avoid is that there's so many people online that uh, because they have a good camera and a mic start talking about things that just they are they don't know about um and so i guess i guess i'm if it seems like i'm avoidant it's truly because like i'm talking out of my depth and when it comes to like uh when it comes to um you know how we should organize the economy or even something like climate change right i have my own biases we should do nuclear we should put more money into fusion but but there are um you know, I, I did a, a, a summer internship with a series um, in a, like computational, like analysis of um, uh, uh, El Nino cycles. And that shit is really complicated. It's incredibly, it's incredibly complex, right? And so it's like, you know, I, I see some future saying we should do solar shading. And it's like, okay, if you, if you dropped, if you dropped um, uh, the surface sea temperature across the Pacific by 30%, we don't have the mathematics that can describe what would happen, yeah. right? And so I, there's a lot of things I'm not, ideologic, uh, I, I'm not ideologically fixed on because I don't have the tools to analyze it. And so um, I suppose in general, my stance is anti-conservative because my project is anti-conservative, just just not not like not specifically Christian conservatism, but like a, a kind of a more a more radical change. Um, but 
I'm not married to any uh, specific idea on the left. I think where we disagree is that um, because groups like Antifa and Black Bloc don't have any political power, and because America is so staunchly capitalist, I'm not afraid of them. Like I don't see them as as being. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're they're not they're not people. That, I disagree. And, and again, that they don't have political power, right? Political power comes at the end of a gun, right? So if you're allowed to run around and push people around, then that's a form of political power. And you can look at like Andy No, he's he's uh, he's documented how the the people who are protesting in um, in Portland and destroying that city and assaulting people are regularly just getting off. They don't they're they don't get convicted of crimes for what they're doing, even though they're they're tried for them and the evidence is there. There's there's a lot of political, I think there's a lot of ideological support for Antifa that uh, that's dangerous. And, and it's part of a general ideological capture of our elite institutions by people with left-wing agendas, which is very scary. And one of the things- I, I, do, that, I do wanna say that because of, um, of the particular phenotype I was spawned in, um, I, have, I have clear biases to, I've never been threatened by anyone wearing black block stuff. Yeah. I have been threatened by you know, people flying Confederate flags. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, you know, like Pennsylvania. Actually, here in Boulder, I don't think those. I don't think these guys were from Boulder. I think they were passing through. But uh, yeah, I got accosted on the street with my kid by like people flying a Trump thing. And the, and that that's not saying like one group is doing it more than the other. I'm saying that my particular phenotype exposes me to a different aspect of reality you discover something interesting though which is that if you change your politics your phenotype would expose you to to attacks from the other side just as much right like look at look at what happens to outspoken conservatives of color and you know watch watch the white antifa people yelling racist pig at black cops right mm -hmm. um, there's a surprising amount of racism and sexism and even homophobia which is given a blind eye on the left, so long as it's aimed at people on the right. What do you, what do you mean? So, so for instance, like it's, it's very popular on, you know, in, in left-wing circles that I've seen like online to, to accuse, uh, you know, white male um, conservatives of being cocksuckers, right? Which, if if the, if oh. the opposite way, the the accusation would be that's homophobia, right? Or you know, if if a, if someone like Candace Owens, who I think is a total shill, but nonetheless, if she speaks her, her perspective, people will say exactly the type of terrible things about her, about her race, right, about her appearance, about her gender, that would be considered utterly unacceptable if she was within the tribe. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to touch if you this go, because if you yeah, go the, the, counter protest yeah. against Antifa, people will call you. You know, uh, will will use racial slurs against you. That's quite possible. Yeah, I I, I don't want to touch this because I'm not on Twitter because Twitter yeah. is awful. But yeah. like, 
Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know how to handle this one because I don't know how to prove or disprove any of it. Right? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I I can't say for certain that the, the amount of racism is equivalent on both sides, right? And I certainly have my own biases, right? Like I, I am exposed to specific sets of information. I try to, like, I live within a extremely left-wing social milieu and always have, right? And I grew, I was... I was fully committed to the left until 2008, right? Mm. I voted for Obama. We won. I celebrated like we'd won the Super Bowl in the streets of, 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 of Bellingham. Mm. Um, and then I flipped, you know, and I went pretty far the opposite way. And now I would say that I'm, I'm, I, I, I genuinely believe that I respect and am and understand the the motivation between all the different political poles and that I and that I think that the solution always lies somewhere along the middle that the the extremes of all of all the ends end up being wrong and i would say that currently i'm much more concerned about what's happening on the left and i think i'd like to think part of that is an objective analysis but i'm also aware that part of that is a reaction to my social milieu that I would be much more concerned about QAnon and much more concerned about MAGA if I was living. If you lived in Florida or something, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. just I'm not I'm not exposed to the craziness of that side all the time, mm-hmm. right? You know, I get, you know, Robin DiAngelo type stuff shoved down my kids' throats at school, not creationist stuff. Right, right, right. So right. of course that's what I'm going to be more concerned about. So I, I totally, you know, I just. I get where you're coming from with like, obviously we, 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 we carry our experience into, into our perspective, but when we come to like, I think, I think for me, it's re- it was really powerful and it was through Peterson that I truly came to understand and respect again, why the left was important and mm. why there were insights there. And that this is something that I think is so interesting that people don't get about Peterson is that if you read him deeply, you can't be an ideological, ideologically committed to either side. You have to recognize that both sides are wrong most of the time. So yeah, maybe it, I, and again, I'm coming at it from someone who's interested in the historical development of social and economic movements. I started in it being interested in military history, like, yeah. like most dudes. Uh, but um, so for me, it, it never seemed, it seemed quite obvious that like, this is kind of how societies develop. Um, you know, you had uh, these vested economic powers that, put money into technologies and, but then the money that they got was like partially through the transatlantic slave trade. It's like difficult to like decouple all of these things, right? Like I'm, I'm the benefactor of like some pretty awful shit that happened in the past to my answer. You know, it's, 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 yeah. And it's all this like Gordian's knot of like weirdness right or the fact that i'm an atheist but it was quakers that advocated for my ancestors freedom like fucking weird um so so to me that seemed quite obvious and maybe i missed it because i i read it and was like 
duh, right? So so it's it's maybe it's just like people who have never, um, who have never kind of engaged with history. Well, I mean, certainly, like. I think when you encounter intelligent conservatism, it's a lot more likely to, to move you towards conservatism. And when you encounter sophisticated, intelligent Christianity, it's a lot more likely to, to, to move you towards Christianity. And if you're, mm. if you're just against that, then anybody who, who's, who is, is doing that is, is going to be potentially threatening. Right. Mm. But, well, I, I don't know. I listen a lot to like guys like uh, Peter Thiel mm-hmm. said, you know, very weird, like transhumanist and Catholic, <laughs> like, and uh, yeah. um, obviously like very wealthy and was like on the pro-Trump situation. And, but, and, and yeah, like total, just total, like weird. Yeah, like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, my, qualms with Peterson is that he doesn't feel I almost feel like if if I want there to be a bad guy in my story I want them to be like worthy I want them to be like 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 Peter Thiel like feels like someone that I can be afraid of you know he's he's got the like he's like really intelligent he like knows theology good bad guy good bad guy guy. like brilliant human being central casting for sure yeah Whereas like Peterson, I'm like, I need more from you. Like, I need you to like, just do more, please. Like, <laughs> Maybe he's not the bad guy. Right. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's a joke. But like, yeah. like I, I kind of, um, uh, like to the extent that he has ideas, I feel like they need to be clearly communicated, and I feel like the there's a lot of um, there's a lot of prescriptive statements that he makes. Again, like you were talking about the the cat that evolved to like bite through human skulls, <laughs> that's, right? That's not prescriptive. That's descriptive. That's a or fault. sorry, that sorry, yes, sorry, that's descriptive. That leads to some to prescribing something, right? Um, you know, he said a lot of shit, and I've listened to most of it, like. And there's only a few things that he says that are really dumb like that. And, and the thing that's really astonishing to me about him is that, I mean, he, he's a clinical psychologist who studies personality psychology. And when you, when you listen to him in his area, he's authoritative, right? He, yeah, no, it, and that, he's highly it, cited, but if you think, but if you, but I'm deeply, deeply invested in evolutionary biology. And I think he offers insights there that you don't get a lot of other places. And his description of the mythological worldview, uh, his essentially updating of Jung, is quite compelling to me. Um, I'm not as deep in that area, but but I I've got some depth, right? Or you know, my my area of interest is like my my strongest subject matter expertise is obviously movement, right? Motor mm-hmm. control, like how do we teach people movement? Peterson's the person who introduced me to J.J. Gibson. J.J. Gibson is the the essentially the founder of ecological psychology and the the most profound stuff that's happening in the understanding of how we control movement is is essentially the combination of jj gibson and nikolai bernstein and if you listen to peterson describe gibson's insights 
it's one of the most profound descriptions of that that you'll find, right? So he's one of those people who have the ability to donate well to a really broad range of conversations. That means, yeah, he makes mistakes. But I, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't think people get how brilliant it is. And I think that's part of why he's so tangential. Right. Yeah. And so, he's so trying, and this, this happens to me too. Like, I feel like this happens to me a little bit too. I'm trying to take ecological psychology, right? Depth psychology, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, motor control theory, parkour, martial arts, you know, um, cognitive science and like congeal something that solves this problem. And I'm not maybe exactly sure even what the problem that I'm aimed at is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so as I try to describe that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be bouncing between these ideas. And sometimes I even feel it. It's like I'm trying to create a stream. I'm trying to create a river of thought. And it's still a cloud, right? And I can see that in Peterson. And, and I'm not saying the guy is perfect or that he doesn't have faults. Um, but, I, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I, he's impacted my world to be more than yeah. else. And I think that when people when people critique him, I just don't hear very good critiques, right? So, so there's, there's a, a, a shift that I've had in the way I consume um, online media that has happened probably in the last four years. And I've actually started to look for more domain experts. Mm -hmm. So I acknowledge that um, multidisciplinary areas of like physics or psychology or something is really important because that's where all the cool stuff is mm -hmm. um but if you're coming at it without having any domain expertise just as a consumer as someone on the internet it's very easy to um have someone speak well and be fooled right? oh yeah and so um so for example like I said, I don't know anything about the economy. So I try not to talk about it because I don't know anything about the economy. Um, to the extent that I consume things about the economy, I like try to actually like engage with, with literature first. And then maybe later I'll consume something yeah. that disproves it. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, when I, when I hear things about the, about military history or like social history in the 20th century, that's just, either off or not taking into account the other things that were happening at the time, that to me, that to me is a red flag. And so, so and so it's like, it's like, uh, you know, oh, okay. So this happens a lot in, um, with engineers in biology, right? So engineering is like notoriously difficult, whether it's mechanical, electrical, um, you know, computer engineering, electrical engineering is probably the hardest, but, these folks come out of these programs, maybe even if they get a PhD, and they attempt to apply their knowledge to biology. Yeah. <laughs> now, so so these people are in are they're brilliant in their in their ex in their areas of expertise, right? So they've gone from these general engineering principles and slowly gotten really good at say like chaotic dynamics in electrical systems, right? And they're brilliant at it. Maybe they have papers. They're well published. They have, uh, you know, a professorship at whatever university, and then they they try to apply their knowledge to something that's completely different. Now, that 
venture is valuable, right? Because we need more people. We need something. Yeah, yeah. But when they speak from a position of authority about systems that they're not very familiar with, that's when I begin to have an issue, right? Because you can say, hey, I'm a student in biology. I'm trying to apply these ideas of um, the way currents work with neurons and maybe there's something there. Cool, thank you. You're doing humanity a great service. But when you when you start to speak like from a position of authority without actually knowing it, that's where I start to have issues because people who don't, who are coming in, engaging with your material that can't tell heads from tails, they'll, yeah. they'll just take you at your word. Yeah, I mean. And, and, and Peterson says, be precise. Yeah, right? yeah. In your but that's the thing. I think, I think that that's one of the things I like about Peterson is that I think that of the big synthesizers, I think he's one of the best at at expressing his level of confidence and his level of expertise in an area. He's not perfect at it. He does get overconfident. He does overstate his things and he does speak too authoritatively. Verveke, I don't know if you've watched my conversations with Verveke, but John Verveke is, uh, is a, a professor of cognitive science at, uh, he's the director of cognitive science at the University of Toronto. He was, um, you know, he's a peer of Peterson's and they, um, they work together and he, he would, the, the, you know, every year they basically have a vote for the most life-changing uh, professor at the University of Toronto. And it was always either Verveke or Peterson, right. While they were there. So he has an amazing series of, of lectures called awakening from a meeting crisis. So anyways, I reached out to him and I've had him on my podcast really regularly, you know, like six times or something. And, you know, we, we communicate regularly. And I would say that he is extraordinarily humble and really, really good at, at kind of, representing that right and he, he rarely oversteps right or is presumptuous so he's better at that than peterson is right peterson is more presumptuous than than Verveke is but he's much less presumptuous than than in my opinion stephen pinker or richard dawkins or um or nasim taleb and certainly someone like reza aslan or richard lewinton or stephen jay gould Right. That, that's why I don't listen to any of them. Like, <laughs> but, but we, you know, generally you like, I wouldn't know where to start with depth psychology. Right. And, and there are insights that happen at the intersections of things that, you, that are, that are val valuable and necessary. I don't love a lot of Steven Pinker's recent work, but I think the blank slate is a really important work. Right. Um, I think that you should take Taleb with a giant grain of salt, but I think that his books are going to expose more people to a bunch of really important concepts than, than they would ever find anywhere else. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Pearson shows that same rule. A lot of times you need a synthesizer and someone who speaks well, just to introduce you to an area and then you can go deeper into it. So like, yeah. So, so it's, it's actually interesting that you're putting um, Taleb and Peterson in the same box yeah. Because I'd never, I'd never thought about, yeah, I, I was thinking about him in the capacity of being a professor, actually, mm -hmm. of, of like, you've developed this expertise yeah. um, and you're, you seem to be quite good at it. Um, Cause it, it almost seems like his personal beliefs and his, him as a psychologist are like somewhat different because as a psychologist, it seems like his advice is pretty fucking good but it but anyway um um 
Yeah, he's a great psycho uh, clinical psychologist. But but I hadn't I hadn't thought about him as a synthesizer. Yeah, because because I, mean, I because I, I tend you know it's interesting I tend not to like synthesizers like there's uh, um, uh, his last name is Harari I think and he wrote uh, Harari yeah I'm not a fan either yeah 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 and I just like I tried to read I tried to read his books and was just like and again because I know it's because I've engaged with history yeah exactly um and it's just like it's, yeah it's useful to recognize as someone who specializes in an area that most people aren't going to specialize in an area right and that there's lots of areas that you're not going to be able to dig deeply into so where where like the truth is that we're reliant on other people's knowledge for 99.99999% of our worldview right like so i i know you know that that um, if you overcue somebody when you're uh, when you're describing a skill, that they'll tend to um, progress less, right? How do I know that? Well, partially I know that from personal experience, right? That's a, that's something that I can see play out. That's empirical for me. Um, but somebody who listens to me, they only know that because I say that, right? That's my they're relying on my empirical stuff, and then I'm relying on research, research that. You know, I can't cite off the top of my head exactly what mm -hmm. the study was, and I can't tell you how many subjects were in the study. I can't tell you what the statistical analysis or study design they used to make that finding, right? I can go back and find those things, and I can, I can sort of continually refine my, my, my knowledge of it, but we, we have to have people who can synthesize fields, right, so that, and make them compelling, right? Yeah. So that people can actually have it. So you have to. There are. We, there's a necessity for interlocutors in 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 the translation of knowledge from specialists to general popula population. And then the question is, how well are they doing that role? Right. Right. And and from my perspective, like as someone who has a lot of of subject matter expertise and things that say Peterson is 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 covering, I'm very happy with how he's playing that role compared to all compared to like. You know, <laughs> I have this idea that we should, there's a statistical concept in sports, wins above replacement. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really useful way to think about public figures, right? Don't compare them to the ideal, compare them to what the replacement would look like. Yeah. Give right? me one second. I've, I've consumed way too much water. Okay. <laughs> Unmute yourself again. So, yeah, let's uh, let's um, let's shift course a little bit here. We want to talk about transhumanism. Right? So that's yeah. your, that's your big focus, and I mean it's 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 a progressive idea, right? It's an idea that that the current condition of humanity is is somehow insufficient, and that we need to move forward. And it's something that I'm super deeply skeptical of. Um, yeah, I mean, th there are some right-wing interpretations of it, which, you know, kind of get scary, but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, sorry, I cut you off. So what does transhumanism mean to you? Like, why are you, um, why is that your passion project? Yeah, so, uh, I suppose it comes from this deep sense of fascination with the, with the possible, 
uh, all the things that that could be. Um, and then from from a historical analysis side, there's um, being interested in all of the ways past inventions have radically changed what it what it uh, means to be human. So um, my last book uh, on this was called Birth of the Pill, uh, which was it's about the, the funding Wait, and invention. Of, write this or read it? Read it. Sorry. Yes. Um, it's called Birth, Birth of the Pill. Uh, it's about the invention of the birth control pill. And um, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, the, I think Peterson is one of the few people that actually talks about how different things were before the invention of the birth control pill and how different things are now and, and what it's made possible for women to do with things like careers and putting off, off um, uh, childbirth and stuff like that. So, the, um, there's this historical component looking back and seeing how much change has happened um, mm -hmm. since kind of the project of civilization began. And then there's the, the personal element of um, I have like some pretty severe, um, you know, reactions to food. Um, I've had lots of near misses with lung infections as a kid. So it was like in the hospital a lot. Um, and just having this realization of like, I wouldn't have made it <laughs> if if I lived in uh, any anything beyond, you know, past 1950. Like I, I probably would have just not made it. Um, so so the why I'm interested has um, kind of the social component of allowing for more liberation. We can talk about that um, because it's a more it seems like a more constructive project. Um, Whereas it seems like operating simply in the social realm of trying to change things like laws and culture can get really messy, uh, makes people upset. Um, if it goes really badly, people die. Um, I'm, so, so that doesn't seem like a good investment to me. Um, yeah, and it's just this the sense of the sense of wonder and and boredom with uh, the way things are now. Have you heard me talk about why I'm anti-transhumanist? Um, no, actually. I mean, essentially, it's it's really just a reflection of the general argument for conservatism, right? And the general argument for conservatism is that, well, first of all, it's much easier to break things than it is to fix them, right? So when we introduce something, um, it, it's it, we're, we're much more likely to, to move it in a, a direction that's wrong than in a direction that's right. Um, so there's a, an essay I can send you called a, a formal argument for conservatism. But basically it says, uh, first of all, imagine that there is essentially, an, you know, a, a functionally infinite set of potential arrangements of human uh, social, of the human social world, right? Now, imagine that there's a relatively few optima within that, right? And three, that we're not very good at identifying what those optima are. Four, that things that have survived for a long time are signals of what might be optimal for us. If all those are true, 
then it's always more dangerous to get rid of attritional structure than to um, than to retain it. I'd, I'd possibly argue with argue point three. Sure. Um, and and that's simply because um, there is the element of uh, military, right? So, for example, you could um, there 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 were um, many more uh, egalitarian structures that were say wiped out by the Romans, the the Roman Republic. Carthage was kind of this like proto capitalist oligarchy system where they sacrifice children regularly i mean that was kind of a feature of like everyone during the iron age yeah but not the romans i mean i mean they had the circuses but they weren't uh doing human sacrifice what about the vestal virgins i don't i don't believe that 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 was a thing that the romans did but i mean so it, it, it it wasn't a regular thing it was a thing when rome was in trouble or during times of war there were um, there were virgins, priestesses that would be sacrificed because that's like the ultimate thing. But yeah. um, so, yeah, so brutal is my point. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm I mean I'm yeah. not saying that. So great graded on the curve yeah. of the time that they lived in. So for example, the um, uh, the Republic of wait, the, I think the Republic of Novgorod was the one that survived. So it might have been That'd the be Duchy of bigger. Moscow. Huh? Okay, I mean that they were talking removed far forward in history if we're talking about Novgorod. Yeah, yeah, but but basically what I'm saying is like the 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 princely states that existed there mm-hmm. were these dynamic uh almost like trade empires. Um they were trying to experiment on like what version of Christianity they were going to take up. Yeah. And then the Mongols came and basically ruined the whole project. Yeah. yeah. And and really started the 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 thread of russian authority authoritarianism Mm -hmm. right was i i personally put that on the mongols right and so you can see moments in history where um projects that we would value if we were forced to live in that time were wiped out by societies that had a stronger military but kind of a society no i mean it's it's not um it's not an airtight argument right it's just it's a directional argument right mm-hmm. that and i think joseph henrik who i don't know if he's if he realizes he's making this argument but i think he makes his argument incredibly well in his book the secret of our success and the secret of our success basically is about the idea that human beings are not highly successful because we're especially smart we're highly successful because we're extremely good at absorbing and transmitting culture so what culture allows us to do is essentially create a darwinian space for the competition of ideas and then we can install those ideas. And that's what makes us highly successful. And he gives lots of examples about this. Like you, if you take European explorers and you strand them in the Arctic, they can't figure out how to make igloos and they can't figure out how to har- harpoon seals, right? Um, if you take you know, European explorers and you st- strand them in, in uh, Australia, even if they watch the natives, they can't replicate how they engage in subsistence there. It takes time for people to evolve these. He gives the example of taro, right? Taro is a poisonous root, right? That has become extremely important in the substance, subsistence of multiple cultures. There's something like 64 steps that are used in the traditional processing, which are largely, they're viewed with from a religious lens. They're not viewed from a pragmatic biological lens, right? 
And if you remove some of those steps, then you're going to start poisoning yourself, but it's not going to become obvious for a decade what you've done. Um, so, you know, you have this, this system that evolved over a long time um, and is very fragile to rational change. Um, and what seems rational is, is going to be very destructive over the long term. So if it's true that essentially what, what makes human beings run is these systems that we're largely blind to, then changing those systems willy-nilly is very dangerous. And this is my, you know, this is a lot of what involvement play is actually about. The idea is that you have to recognize and understand human nature and then try to look back to the past to try to capture the wisdom traditions that have allowed people to flourish. Now, we have to evolve the capacity for evolvability because the, the problem with traditions is that traditions are always, um, they're always optimized for an environment that no longer exists. And, and this is the problem that we face. The pill completely changes everything, right? The car completely changes everything. Tinder has completely changed everything. But my, what I'm worried about is essentially, I think of culture as a, um, as an interface between our biology and our technological and ecological and economic environments. Right? And over time, it evolves to sort of optimize that. So our biology functions well, and it's relatively, we have relatively high well-being. When the thing changes, then you need to create new solutions, right? Um, but we're not that good at creating solutions <laughs> to these problems. So what, what can happen is as the speed of change increases, you're ending up essentially building on kludges, right? You, you have to create a fast, dirty solution. And the example I like to give is like uh, sickle cell anemia, right? You have a strong selective pressure coming to your environment, malaria, biology spits up an accident a mutation that happens to be useful. And then it's rapidly replicated across the the, the genome, even though it's uh, has a lot of pernicious side effects. And I think a lot of what we're doing um, culturally is the same type of thing, right? Um, and so the speed of change is actually something that I think is directly contrary to human well-being. So trying to increase the speed of change is to me the wrong place to invest. I, I like, I don't, I think the project of trying to move to other planets is really, I'm not against it. I just think that it, it, it doesn't solve any of the important problems of human existence, because I think that human beings are much more deeply attuned to being earthlings than we realize. And that you can't remove a human being from the context of the earth and put them in some other completely different ecology down to the type of the, the spectrum of light that they're absorbing, the, the cycle of the day, the gravity that they're experiencing. Um, they, I don't think a human being as a human being can survive on another planet. I think that in order for, a hum, for human beings to colonize other planets, we will have to engineer ourselves into something that would be completely alien to us. And this is why I'm a transhumanist. So when I was a kid, I really... Um, I was really interested in 
exploring the solar system and seeing what was there. But it was the realization that these environments are so different um, and that we are really not evolved for it that uh, that helped push me along to, to, to these ideas. And so, so, so there, there's a couple of things. One, I'm not gonna trivialize um, how difficult these, these projects of like changing humanity are. Um, I think in the case of something like space exploration, I think what it does is it increases, uh, it increases humanities or whatever branch of hominid surface area to explore new economic, social, cultural ways of being, especially if you're not living on earth, your culture is going to be quite different. And so maybe there's an, there's a, uh, we haven't achieved an optima, right? Which is why I spoke about um, military expansion, right? Because if you live, uh, let's say you live on a moon of Jupiter, if someone on earth uh, um, believes that your culture is abhorrent, it's going to take quite a bit of oomph to get people over there to like beat you up and convert you to whatever, right? Whereas uh, Earth is, is um, we're the most ideologically and religiously homogenous we've ever been. There's, there's no, uh, um, certain ideas have kind of grown into their limit to the point where they're, the, the only option is to push into each other. Um, and it's, I, I don't know what it will take for us to, um, to, to deal with that. Um, so that's, that's one point. The other is human well-being is kind of a flexible, and we, both of us have a different concept of human well-being. So to me, the speed of change is actually good because um, it's too fast to legislate. It's too fast to, to have a, a culture or an aspect of the culture come down on it, right? If people, if people of the time voted on the birth control pill, it wouldn't have happened, right? It, it took a bunch of you know, chemists to, sure. to do it in a really janky and kind of unethical way uh, with the, the experiments in Puerto Rico um, to just put this thing into the world and say, here it is. Um, and, and I think, I think uh, one area where most of the left kind of misses the plot is that they don't talk about the transformative element of, of technology, right? Um, so I think that there's a good case that the birth control pill has largely been negative, particularly for say the African-American community, right? Because you've destabilized, potentially you can make an argument and uh, I won't say this argument is definitive, but we've changed the entire incentive structure of the mating market. And that's destabilized family formation, which has resulted in the largest numbers of broken families that have ever existed in our society, in particular in the African-American community. And we see that there's a huge correlation between any number of social pathologies and broken families. Right. So is that, is that on the, is that on the birth control pill though? Like that don't, we, we would have to, I'm, I'm sure there's that some study that I'm saying that, okay. it's certainly, it, that it's that you could certainly that it's certainly a reasonable, it's a plausible 
um, it's a plausible incentive in the system that changed people's behavior in a direction that resulted potentially in a massively lower net well-being, all else being equal. I, oh, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that this is the facts, right? Okay. I'm just saying that you point at something like that as if it's necessarily an, an unalloyed good, and I. I can see an argument that in fact, it's destabilized our culture in ways that have been far more damaging than, um, than people realize. Well, I mean, I suppose it would have to be established as like a sociological fact for me to, but, but that being said, pe people who have more freedom are gonna do crazy shit. Like in the United States, you can buy you can buy everything short of, you know, uh, a bazooka or like a stinger missile. Yeah. And that means that there's going to be some subset of the population that chooses to use that on their neighbors, mm -hmm. right? That's just a thing that like, obviously it's a debate, but um, so far- The bigger problem with guns is people using it on themselves. Yes, yes, yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, Suicide is, yeah, like, suicide is, is way bigger. Three or four times as common cause of death is uh, murder. Um, yeah. So, but, but as a society, we've kind of just folded that into what we accept as every day. I mean, even with cars, right? Like yeah. I'm like, I, we just accept traffic deaths, right? And that's just a part of American life. And we're most cities in America are based around this thing that takes, you know, I, I don't know the number, but it's quite high. Uh, it kills a lot of people every year. So like, would, would some of the things that I'm interested in pro increase alienation? Yeah, probably. Like, would it, um, would it alienate young men who want traditional families? Probably. Um, and that part, I don't quite know how to deal with because it seems like if that's what you want, especially in this society with the internet, you can find someone to meet that need. You're, you're not gonna like... Uh, well, no, I mean, that's I, I, like people are failing at that. Like that, that's like the average woman would like to have uh, two to three children and mm -hmm. it, you know the average woman is having 1.7 ch uh, children and mm -hmm. if she has a graduate de degree then she has less than one child per individual woman so the the expressed desires of the population are not being met right if you look at something like tinder the average woman matches with four percent of her potential uh, of potential males that she that she um, that she sees on the app, the average male uh, matches with sixty percent of the potential females that he sees on the app. So there's this massive um, insensitive structure that's changing the way that men and women behave in ways that are probably not healthy or good for them. Right? It, something like um, men between the ages of eighteen and thirty, the men, the, the number of men who are uh, who have not had sex in the last year between the ages of 18 and 30 has doubled in the last decade, I believe, between 2008 and 2018. Um, so 
the system is shifting in a direction that is making it harder for the average person to satisfy their needs, right? So women are maybe able to find sexual partners, but because a relatively small group of men are the ones who are being selected by women, they are generally opting out of partnership, right? So, so you have some men who are doing really well in short-term mating, some women who are enjoying short-term mating with those men, but not getting the long-term mating that they desire. And a lot of men who are locked out of the market completely. Um, yeah, this is a really, uh, this is a conversation I was not prepared to have yeah. <laughs> um, for several, re several reasons. One, because every person that I've dated, I've met online. Mm -hmm um through a dating app but uh i also i i haven't i've kind of circled around these these discussions and tend not to pay attention to them um so i actually don't i don't know anything about uh the specifically the effect of men or the or the effect on men of of this stuff um but if you and I feel lie. like I feel like anything that I would say is just like, yeah. just so you, know, you have the sense that there's a crisis of masculinity or of 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 men, I suppose, mm -hmm. in the parkour community that you're picking mm -hmm. up on. Um, this is quite possibly the type of thing that is moving a lot more men towards depression, and we see that depression and anxiety and suicide are all rapidly rising, right? and um, it's actually more in women. Um, especially young, uh, young women, but men always commit suicide uh, more frequently than women. So, well, so so I, I think one thing that um, is clear to me is that there's a, um, there is a disconnect in the way the modern world works versus what we're wired for. Exactly. So, for example, if Let's say that both of us want to get into a fight, right? Yeah. We're probably we're probably going to do fists, yeah. you know, kicks, knees. We might we might grapple. If it's really bad, we might grab weapons. Mm -hmm. Modern combat between nations happens at ranges that are inconceivable to the human. Drones and missiles. Drones and missiles, and even even a firefight, right? If the both of us are shooting at each other, mm -hmm. I if you were crossed across the street you'd be considered close right oh, yeah. that's considered close combat right this was actually something that kind of um gave your collective existential dread during the first world war mm -hmm. is that warfare had been completely disconnected from masculinity there was no courage mm -hmm. right the courage was in holding the position while you while you get shelled to yeah. to the you know while your position gets turned into the fucking moon right mm -hmm. like there, there wasn't um, the concept of like the shield wall or charging on cavalry or like any of that stuff. And some of that, you know, was brought over to the pike and shot era where like people were slowly transitioning to muskets. But it, 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 this seems to me like a, like a, a wider, like, it seems like every aspect uh, of 
what we were wired for as we progress into the future becomes more abstract and alienating, right? And so, and so there's, you know, like oftentimes there's this, there's this aspect of the um, science fiction and futurist community that brings in real physics concepts into writing science fiction literature. And so um, kind of an outgrowth of this would be like uh, the Expanse books. Sure, yeah, love those. Right. And, and so in the Expanse, the, the way the authors um, have people actually fighting in person, it's all like very circumstantial. Most of the actual combat between nations are happening at like hundreds of thousands of miles in between ships, right? Literally people are like sitting at computers, right? And like drinking coffee as if it's like they're at an office, right? And the stakes are like the structure that is maintaining human life is going to either vaporize or not, right? It's so different from the way humans evolve to fight other animals and each other, right? I like. And this, does that this is mean- precisely why I'm an, <laughs> why, why I'm against transhumanism because what you're talking about is accelerating a trend towards alienation when we haven't solved the problem, right? So I, I tend to, so obviously there are certain things about technology and capitalism that have been really great, right? Like you know. Uh, never have we lived in a world where more people have abundance of food, clean water, shelter, electricity, right? Um, Antibiotics, right? Like just in the last like 40 years, something, you know, China has been turned into a middle-class nation, right? Whatever you want to say about the CCP, and I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the role of the CCP in the world. The fact that hundreds of millions of Chinese people are no longer starving has to be seen as a global good, right? That said, I have this sense that at least in the West, the role of technology in improving human well-being has stalled in the 90s and that most of what we have developed technologically since then has actually eroded human well-being. Facebook, Uh, Twitter... Instagram, smartphones, these things are actually making human beings more reactive, more dependent, less capable, um, and, uh, and, and more emotionally miserable. Okay, so I would say that I, um, I'm a really weird case because, so I, I was born in East New York, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, which is like one of the, in the 90s, it was like one of the poorest and most dangerous parts of Brooklyn um moved to moved around a lot as a kid uh was homeless at some point with my family and one of the interesting things is that the internet actually video games taught me how to read and the internet um taught me how to speak in the um uh like standard american vernacular which has opened up so many doors for me um, just like my cultural affect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all YouTube, literally just like watching YouTubers and, and copying them. And obviously that's like a whole other thing of like, uh, that, that's, a, that's a whole other can of worms that different sociologists would find really interesting. I mean, re- regardless, yeah. um, kind of my, my um, the internet can be alienating, but 
it was through the internet that I was able to find yeah. uh, even parkour, right? No, I, have a so, sim- I have a similar story. Yeah. Right? Like, I, you know, I grew up in a, you know, in a redneck town, right? Um, in a hippie community. So I'm not a real big fan of hippies. I'm not, <laughs> not, I don't culturally meld well with, with, with rednecks. So I was very socially isolated. I was very socially retarded in my teens, right? Because I just wasn't exposed to people who I found interesting to communicate with, right? And so I, I really started developing social skills through Tolkien forums online. Oh, whoa, okay. In my, the first communities of friends that I found as a young adult were through, you know, you know, the one ring.net and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, and then, and then, you know, music forums as well. And then, and then, and then parkour. Uh, right. And uh, that was a, a huge thing. And then I've, I've traveled the world professionally, basically through contacts that were made through those forums through the and, and then, and then Facebook, right? Like my entire career and the discipline that I'm devoted to owes its widespread nature to, to the internet. So um, obviously these things are things that have powerful benefits it's just a matter of the cost versus the benefits. And when I look right. at a society wide analysis, even though I can look at my own life and say, okay, this has been great for me. Um, I think a society wide analysis indicates to me that the role of, of particularly, I think social media and, um, and the smartphone have been extremely pernicious in their impact on human beings. Yeah. I mean, it- Look, I'm not going to sit here and defend social media companies. I, I'm of the opinion that uh, we need to, <laughs> here's actually one of the, one of the areas I agree with Peter Thiel on is like, we need to get back to physical technology, yeah. um, like in zero to one, uh, his, his latest book, he really advocates for like, you know, the, you know, companies like Neuralink or companies like SpaceX or companies like. I don't know, companies that are doing physical things in the world that actually are good for us instead of like, I, I, have, a, I have a pretty dim view of um, apps. Like I, I feel like it's just, it's one of the areas of, um, of capitalism that can get become very rent seeking, mm-hmm. you know, things like, uh, like Airbnb, as much as I love Airbnb, Lyft, as much as I love Lyft, it's just like the, the, there's actually the innovation is such that they can cannibalize existing structure, business structures like hotels or, or um, cabs Mm -hmm. without actually like adding something new into the world that is like, I don't know. That is like physical. I was, I I was going to pick this up, but this is a phone, but like, you know, like, uh, yeah, I have a deep respect for my goodness. This camera is like not handling, (laughs) not, not handling the sun. Well, um, you know, for material scientists and people like in chip design and mechanical engineers and, and stuff like that. And so that's kind of what I think about when it, when I talk about accelerating technology, I think we need to get out of this, like, this whirlpool that we're in because it's it's 
it's it's in my view it's it's almost like um the financialization of the market where you're just like moving around capital to sure. do things in the world that actually aren't that different like one one argument that really gelled with me um that teal makes is uh if you look at the interior of a house or an office in the 80s like other than other than like aesthetics how different is it really from a house in 2020 mm-hmm. like infrastructure hasn't changed you don't really have like a Jetson style AI helper. Like it's it's really we the the technologies we've pushed forward are important, but there's there's too much capital focus on it. And again, I'm not an economist, so I don't I I don't necessarily know. Actually, okay, here's one thing I've heard from economists. The reason why there's so much um, capital allotment to social media companies is because you're not creating anything physical. So there's no, there's no investment into yeah. labs, factories, that kind of thing. And then if you're just paying software engineers, yeah, their salaries are like almost $200,000, but you only have 50 of them in your startup, right? As compared to like having an army of people, both inventing and manufacturing and distributing a physical product, um so for someone yeah right for someone who's investing it's i mean it's a it's a really good investment yeah um i mean i i've I've heard eric weinstein and peter teal talk about this and about you know essentially the 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 great stagnation and how we need to to move out of it but i fundamentally like so i think the teal Weinstein perspective is something like we're, we're misallocating our talent. It's largely going into um, financialization and digital spaces. And, you know, that's, that's just not going to create the widespread abundance and affluence that, uh, that the sort of more physical technological revolutions of the early 20th century did. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I respect that argument, to, and but I also am still leery of new technology as just a general thing because I think that the speed of change has resulted in us having a very poor culture to um, technological match right now, and that that's actually the bigger problem that human beings face. And I think, you know, Weinstein, to me, a lot of transhumanism just feels like... Um, well, actually, more more and more, I see things through a Christian symbolic lens, right? Right. The, the idea is basically like Weinstein wants there to be a transcendent goal for humankind, and that transcendent goal is getting our species out into space, right? But I don't think that actually achieves anything that is important to individual human beings, right? It, it, it expands the, the, the amount of hominid-like things out there. But those things that once they're on other planets are gonna be unrecognizable to us. We're essentially just gonna see the world with alien life forms. And, you know, like you, you mentioned the expanse, I think the expanse does a really great job of pointing out that all the horrible dynamics of human nature can play out in space just as well, right? Mm-hmm. And we can toss rocks at each other, um, you know, uh, we've so become here's, gods, here's but actually, for the wisdom. 
So becoming more godlike without developing any more wisdom just seems like a bad mistake to me. So I think that the real, the, the place that I want talent allocated is in learning what human beings are really like, what they respond well to, and how to maximize their well-being. Um, and fundamentally, I think that, you know, when, when transhumanists point to the ability to sort of manipulate your biology in any way, or the ability to, to get off this planet, they're essentially describing a kind of, a, a kind of um, teleology that is, is a movement towards the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, tend to, I tend to really disagree with um, singular, singularitarians yeah. um, because they're, they're, the way they frame the singularity, whatever the fuck that is, um, is, is very, it's very rapturous. Mm -hmm. um, like once AI can do this, then we'll be, and, and, and I grew up in a, in a Pentecostal tradition. So I'm just, I, I kind of recognize it for what it is. Um, and to me, it's not necessarily, I, I don't, the way I view transhumanism is that there are layers of difficulty in the natural world, and we don't know how high this thing goes, but in the same way that like, you layers. can't teach. Yeah. So, so you, so, um, like in the same way you cannot teach your dog calculus, right? There's, oh, there's only like, like a there's only, um, there's a ceiling to like what a dog's, a dog self-actualizing and pushing its limit as like a pack and in an, and an individual means. There's, there's a ceiling because we're biological creatures to what we can do. Mm -hmm. And so if we, if we mess with the, because the, the unit, the single unit of a society is the individual. Right, and so we can tweak things at the at the um, at the level of the society with laws and culture and stuff like that. But if humans say we're the sort of species that could like survive in a vacuum, climate change would still suck for all the other animals. But like for us, we'd be like, well, I mean, we can survive on the moon and Europa and like Ganymede, so like it doesn't matter. See, I think there's an illusion there. You think of the th of the thing that we create that survives in the vacuum as us, and I don't think that that's us. Well, and and, and I guess and here's where it connects author, with right. He, here's where it connects with why I'm somewhat sympathetic, or why I'm sympathetic to to kind of left cultural left affectations. It's because I think humans sentient life whatever we really need to get better at um dealing with difference right so you believe differently from me mm -hmm. um i'm of a sexual different sexual orientation different ethnic group than you i have friends that are trans whatever we have to figure out how to get on because as time progresses we will become more different yeah um and and if we can't if we can't deal with someone switching from male to female or female to male, we're not going to be able to handle people genetically engineering themselves, implanting devices, that, that kind of thing. And I actually really worry that our inability to deal with difference is going to 
spell trouble once we once the technologies really allow for people to augment themselves. Uh, have you read R. Scott Baker? No. Uh, highly recommend. Um, but you can read an essay pretty quick on his website called um, The Semantic Apocalypse. And his contention basically there is that once we have the technology to alter our minds, that we will diversify in such a way that we are, um, that we will become completely incomprehensible to ourselves, to each other, right? And we should be very worried about that because essentially the thing that comes after that, we're just the scaffold for. <laughs> um, and that's what's in that, whatever they see as in their interest isn't necessarily in our, in our interest. Um, yeah. Um, I, so, and this is my, my fundamental thing. Like I, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a believer in, uh, in the necessity for love, right? Uh, I think that's that's the best way to think about it, right? That's that to me is the Christian vision. The Christian vision is that I love that I that I treat the world as as ha everyone in the world as having the potential to contribute towards moving us closer to the kingdom of heaven, right? And I don't mean this in a metaphysical way, right? that symbolically, I think the most powerful orientation for a human being to adopt. So I can, I can treat someone who's bisexual or transsexual or anything else with love. Um, and I think that's actually a better orientation than the, the orientation of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because what I see within the, the so, critical social justice community is actually, um, an extreme intolerance of those who don't agree with their position, right? So for instance, I think that a large percentage of people who are currently coming out as trans are, are affected by a social contagion and that this is probably not in the interest of their well-being. I also think there's a substantial uh, portion of people who are legitimately trans and do need to transition and that's the best path for them. But I think the, the push towards an affirmation only approach to transsexuality has been a massive, uh, massively harmful thing. Now, there are a lot of people who well, immediately attack me as a transphobe for saying that. And that's, that's not a tolerant position. And what we're seeing is that even as we are pushing for a inclusion of a broader set of identities, we are becoming less and less tolerant of deviation from the orthodoxy of belief. And that is what scares me. So correct me if I'm wrong, don't you have to see a psychologist to, to start transitioning? So what's happened is that within psychology, there has been a push for a approach to treatment of transsexuality called aff affirmative only care. That is to say that whatever you tell me your gender is, I, as your psychologist, have to affirm you in that. So this is not based on any solid science. This has been, as far as I understand, pushed by activist communities. And there have been, you know, important researchers like Ray Blanchard or Alice Drager who have been driven out of their university positions because of speaking out against this. And there's a large and growing community of detransitioners 
who didn't get the support that they needed to recognize what was actually going on with them. What we've seen is that transsexuality has, has gone from uh, something like 0.02% of the population to now over 2% of uh, Generation Z um, declare themselves as transsexual. Almost all of them are girls, and it seems to be associated with um, the same the same social markers and of social distress that we saw with anorexia, which was also socially contagious, and bulimia and self harming, cutting. All these things are associated with with the growth of that community. So, to me, so it's actually not a loving thing to accept somebody's idea about who they are uncritically. So yeah, so so. I don't have I don't have the data. I, I'm not on solid ground to argue sure. about this particular point because I don't have the data and I haven't engaged with um, the kind of psychological element of it. But it's because I have the position. So so transhumanists, there's like the the kind of like more left transhumanists, and then there's the like like American libertarian transhumanists. But one thing we agree on is this idea of morphological freedom, which is to say, if you want to augment your body, it's like, this is your form to do with whatever you want to do with. And so, you know, my response to, to people wanting to detransition is, why don't we have better technology to allow people to go back to the sex they were born as? Like, it seems like, like it would be, kind of an obvious thing to do and i'm sure someone's working on it somewhere right yeah um be, because because basically what you want is for someone to be able to make that choice decide it's not a good choice and then go back and then like all of the medical stuff is like whatever because you know some doctor 50 years ago figured sure. it out but we don't live in that world right we don't live but in we can world. but we can create that world in the same way that we didn't maybe. live in a world where I don't we think we can create that world, honestly, but, or I think, yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure that we can create that world, at least not for a long time. We don't have the technology. Like if you look at what um, gender transition looks like, like um, it's, it, it's pretty intense. It's intense. It's, yeah. it, it's not comparable, right? It is not, it is not like you're just just like another person of the of the gender that you move to, I should say sex, but um, but uh, and my underlying assumptions, I and, think, and are you just can't, like you like you couldn't you can't take my bone structure and make it into a woman's. Yeah, yeah. So that that's one area where I'm not even. I, I so this like, and I don't this know is how something I was prepared that. for. But can you imagine? what it would take to take my giant broad shoulders right mm. narrow hips and massive frame like i'm 225 pounds right how tall are you i'm uh six foot one Fuck. that's right? crazy okay yeah you know my hands my wrists my my the bone on my forehead like to, to make me passable as a woman, you would have to re-engineer me at it. Like you'd have to just completely change this body, right? And yeah, that's fine. I mean, so, so here's the thing. I'm not well, trivializing I don't think how, I, here's, I'm not trivializing how yeah. difficult these projects would be. Yeah. Um, what I am saying is like, 
I believe that people should do what they want with their with their and so okay so th this is the more transhumanist you have to, you have to is, recognize is, right is, like, is is i'm not affirming i'm not necessarily affirming like their beliefs about themselves but i'm coming from it from a transhumanist position of like do whatever you want with your body but here's the thing you have to you have to give people real knowledge and you and like right now people are pushing for earlier and earlier transition of children right something like puberty blockers everyone should be able to have access to few puberty blockers but puberty blockers result in long-term osteoporosis you may never be able to orgasm your fertility is disrupted your iq is 10 percent uh 10 point low, uh, lower at adulthood than if you didn't take puberty blockers for an extended period of time like these things have real consequences right and 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 you know girls are going in and getting mastectomies when they're 15 years old without parental permission you you can put a breast back in, but it's not a breast. You can't regrow the tissue that allows a woman to feed a child. You just put a piece of silicone in its place. Like this is not the, the technology to truly be able to undo the terrible things that people are doing to their bodies isn't even close to existing. You're, and, but I think what you're listing out to me is, is a feature set of an incomplete project. In, in the same way that, in the same way that like, like 20 years ago, telling someone that you'd be able to reland okay, rocket so, boosters yeah, is like, okay. so I mean, yeah, my, my example, frame here's, is here's a body, different. here's a body, um, here's a body manipulation that has gone from very unsophisticated and damaging to legit. People can now get hair transplants that look completely natural and look great. And that was not true. And it only exists to some degree now because people went and tried it over and over again and it sucked. <laughs> but yeah. the problem is that people are ideologically pretending like what we have now can actually achieve what they're trying to achieve. The problem with having this incomplete uh, uh, project set is that you're telling people that the project set actually achieves the end and it doesn't. All right, here's where I'm going to get in trouble. It's an incomplete project set. Yeah. Like, like I'm not I so so there's this discussion but, in the trans community about passing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's because we're working with primitive technology, and and it, it and it's see, ah oh, fuck. God, people are gonna be so mad at me. But it's it's because. It's because our methods are primitive, right? And so as far as like figuring, I mean, also augmenting someone with hormones instead of down at the genetic level is problematic because like things aren't one for one in that way in, in the body. Um, but. Shut down your natural hypothalamus. Hypo hypothalamus gonadal system, right? HPTA, yeah. uh, HPTG um, system. So, but, but, it, but so, so, you know, as a transhumanist, I generally believe like you have to be of consenting age to augment your body in a way, especially if it's, if it's a more primitive technology, it will be harder to undo that kind of thing. Um, I've heard from psychologists that it's psychologically better for um for 
someone who's trans to have like that intervention early. I don't, I haven't thought about it. So I don't know. I don't know. Established by the research, right? I I don't know what to make of that point. What I 70% of gender dysphoric children desist in their gender dysphoria if they reach adulthood and they're not transitioned before they reach adulthood. And this is completely ignored by the trans activist community, right? So is that where, where is that? Well, I guess, yeah. So what I want to argue, I, yeah, I want to argue from my axioms instead of being pulled into defending things that I don't yeah. really know about. Um, it, yeah, so I mean, I guess this is why transhumanist philosophy is kind of boring because it's it's very libertarian in that way of just like, um, and, and it's also, it has a technological focus. So I'm not going to argue with you about um, things like bone density or like um, kind of the wh- where the technology is at right now, because that's I mean it's 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 clear that that the the changes aren't so like the the discussions in the trans community about passing wouldn't exist if the technology was like spot on, right? I think we could yeah. So so in in my view, we should give we should push to in the same way that we're pushing towards Mars or pushing towards like better solar solar panels we should push towards a situation where someone can make that decision and have it not fuck up their life. And that's just, I, I think yeah. most transhumanists would, would agree with me there of, of mm. yeah. Uh, okay guys, technical difficulties. So um, we tried to record the podcast. We forgot to, uh, we tried to pause the podcast, forgot to unpause the podcast. We've been talking for quite a bit longer since then. So we don't know where the conversation ended. But we both have to move on with our day. So personally, we're not going to be able to go back and finish the threads. So apologize for the conversation feeling a little bit um, sudden in its ending. Um, but I know I really enjoyed it. Um, I really appreciate the openness, uh, Lucas, in, in coming on here and wanting to have a conversation across some pretty deep ideological lines. And um, I, I look forward to future future conversations. Yeah, I do as well. I'll be back when I'm better read about sociology. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, is there anything pe- you want people to know about you or anywhere to find you or just? Um... Oh, well, um, you know, I, I think parting words, uh, parting words. I, I think um, the range of possibilities is possibly is potentially bigger than than we expect. And so um, and so I think that um, one of the ways to be optimistic about the future is to kind of tap into all of the cool things happening with technology. Um, uh, it's not to say place your entire faith in technology, but um, I think it's one of the ways to kind of get through the uh, through the the doom scrolling and all of the awful news um, on on the internet. So yeah, I love the term doom scrolling. <laughs> less doom scrolling that's my advice. less yeah le- less doom scrolling more more um solar punk and all that cool stuff <laughs> have a good day hey you reached the end of another evolved move play podcast if you enjoyed what you heard if you want to be involved in the conversation please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month question and answers with me once a month and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, 
make sure to check out the link below, get signed up and join a part of our membership community. If you can join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share and subscribe and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming Evolve to Play podcasts. But adios for now and we'll see you next time. Thanks guys.